Hello and welcome to Ethereum Audible. Happy Tuesday. Glad to have you back amidst this bear crash market conditions. Well, they're terrible. Let's be frank. Let's be honest. I think everyone's suffering through it, but that's what a crash feels like also in stocks, also in crypto. I think the, the one thing that it's important to keep in mind is keep calm and carry on. All of the overall larger themes that we've been touching about decentralization, digital ownership, individual freedom, sovereignty, all of that holds true, as well as a better financial system. So everything is holding true. The systems out there, they're working. That's what's wonderful about this crash in a way that is actually mind boggling. The system is getting stress tested like the traditional financial system did in 2008. And Unlike there, here in the crypto world, there is no Fed. There is no U.S. Treasury that can come bail people out, but there is leverage. And so that's what we're seeing. We're seeing a lot of players in the industry just get liquidated, and that's causing this huge amount of down whoosh selling. That's, what it, that's I think, the official term, a down whoosh sell. But the system itself, the rails, the infrastructure are holding up. And unlike Lehman, unlike AIG that needed to be bailed up, Fannie Mae, Freddie Mac, in crypto, because there is no there is no backstop, there is no saver of last resort, the system is built to be more anti-fragile. And while there's the prices drop, we're definitely not above that. We're not kind of defended against large price swings, that's for sure. But also, because the system is over collateralized, it's still holding, holding strong, I'm going to call it DeFi is working, the blockchains keep on putting out blocks, people get liquidated, you can invest, you can transfer ether around the world, you can transfer Bitcoin around the world, you can take a borrow out of a protocol, a liquidity, which we've spoken with the team there, protocol is alive and kicking doing exactly what it's supposed to do over collateralized and so this is really kind of just know what you own know what you own know where you're centralized know where you're decentralized know what the collateral is this is crypto is really on us as an investor base know what you own so i really hope that you're doing well these days i hope that you're getting away from your screen that you're taking the long-term view and we're keeping on building and today i'm super super excited because this is an interview with a builder in the ecosystem. Today's not a read-through, today's an interview with Nick, who's the CTO at Teller, and Teller is an Oracle, a decentralized Oracle protocol. And this was just one of the more interesting conversations I've had with someone in crypto who I felt I really aligned with on a lot of topics, so I definitely enjoyed that, but I also enjoyed getting schooled on a lot of topics and just super enjoyed this conversation. We dove deeply into what the Oracle problem is when it makes sense to build with oracles, when it doesn't make sense to build with oracles, what kind of fracture points there are in the system, usually at the seams between a protocol and the oracle, and what you should be thinking about, either as a developer or as someone who's trying to assess the risks in a system. And this was just a great conversation. I've actually listened to it twice since recording, just because I thought Nick dropped so much great info, and I hope you enjoy this as well. Nick, welcome to Ethereum Audible. Yeah, thanks for having me. Excited. So am I. So am I. This is a topic that I'm also fascinated by, and I also think you guys are taking an interesting approach that a lot of other play, kind of players in the space taking a completely different approach and also i've been binging all your podcasts so uh there are a bunch of other topics that are adjacent to your to the team to your background that i wanted to touch on so excited awesome um, so let's just start with as deep a dive as you can go on what is the oracle problem if there's any history on different approaches that have been taken to solve it why can't you know a a blockchain like Ethereum deal with internal oracles for specific things. And then we'll kind of go from yeah. there into what Teller is. Yeah, so I, I think the oracle problem 
you know, speaking really high level is just that smart contracts can't query off-chain information. So, you know, the classic example is, you know, like a price feed. Let's say you have a, a stable coin and you need to know um, the Ethereum US dollar price or the Bitcoin US dollar price if you're just doing a Bitcoin one. Um, how do you, how does your smart contract actually know that? Well, you know, you could query an API, you know, if you were in a normal computer program, but smart contracts actually can't query APIs. And this actually has to just do with sort of how everything has to be deterministic. So, you know, if you run, if you run the program now and I run the program six months from now, we have to come up with the same answer. And obviously querying an API, you would not come up with the same answer. So there's, there's no, API calls, there's no reading external information, every blockchains are sort of these closed systems and everything has to be input into the system. So the Oracle problem. So just to double click on that, which is basically because, and do you know if this is specifically EVM or if other blockchains treat it differently, but basically you're calling an API if the blockchain state is to be held kind of true and uh, I don't know if valid is the right word, but essentially the computation you're running now, someone else should be able to do that in X amount of time and come up with the same computation. And if we're using an external data source, then that's actually not necessarily going to be the case. Exactly. So everything has to be sort of packaged in this. These are the inputs. These are the outputs running the program. It always comes out the exact same. And that's basically every blockchain, you know, where they solved. Does that hold true even for, I guess, things that don't impact the state of the chain? So like what? I, I so maybe if like a, a price feed affects the actual contract, but maybe if there's just, uh, I'm trying to think on the fly of a random variable that if I queried <laughs> it, <laughs> it would just kind of be, I don't know, an append only and wouldn't affect actually the state. It would just kind of maybe latch on more data into the chain. Yeah, I mean, I guess I guess they, they don't allow that. I mean, that would be cool. You you know, like a you could just like log metadata. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's kind of what I was thinking. About. Yeah. Now it would be they, they don't at the moment. So now it's it's basically just everything is put in as an input and then it spits out. Um, which is fine. And so the question using, is always so yeah. I guess using an internal mechanism like a uh, I don't know like a uniswap kind of price feed that's just reading another sort of internal thing so you, everything is sort of self-contained within the ethereum network um, but you know you couldn't read a chain a uniswap oracle on another chain for instance right okay so sorry I cut you off. I cut you off go get no no I, it's good um, yeah so the oracle problem is how do you sort of figure out who gets to input that data. So let's say for, you know, we're, let's say you and I are betting on the Bitcoin price. How do we get to pick who gets to put in the Bitcoin price at the end? Obviously, if it's one of us, then, you know, the bet is probably not fair. Uh, we could rely on some third party. So say there's just, you know, one person, they can put it in. We rely on a multi-sig, they could put it in. And, and it's just all of these problems about how do you come up with, okay, an honest answer for what is that? The price or you know if you ask it just a general question who who's the current president or something like that that external information should be able to put on be put on chain in a trusted way um some of the early approaches so like i, I don't know how much your users know there was like these shelling point systems were probably some of the earlier ones so especially on ethereum you had things like augur were considered an oracle so you you would ask it a question and then people would place bets as far as like you know, who's the current, is is Joe Biden the current president? And then you would place bets on yes or no. And um, you would assume that basically if everyone is betting honestly, and as long as people are betting in the system in a way that they're trying to make money, that you're gonna end up with a proper answer. Uh, there, were, there were Oracle examples similar to that on People were trying to build on Bitcoin as well. I think I think the first mention was in like a 2013 Reddit post to the Oracle problem. Um, and since then, we, we've sort of just been moving, trying to figure out how do we get the Oracle problem solved in a way that 
A, we have sort of better guarantees of the data, but then also you can do it faster. So like Augur was notoriously slow and, and waiting for these prediction markets to settle was relatively slow. So how do we sort of put data on chain in a quick way um, and for all different types of assets? So whether it's a price feed, whether it's bridging information, whether it's, um, you know, you want to weather data from an insurance contract or, or something like that. Um, and this, this has been generally the struggle over the past few years, really, really probably the last three or four years with the Oracle space kind of just actually picking up with a, quite a few different ideas, so. So I'm gonna, I'm gonna try and summarize that succinctly, sure. also for myself, but also, so basically the problem is we can't rely on off-chain feeds because then the EVM just wouldn't be able to compute it over time. So that kind of breaks the system. And the other problem is just kind of the timeliness of it, where if you're doing something like what Augur was doing, then it's just very slow. Yeah, so this was like, you know, you could, there, there's all sort of problems. Like you can have oracles as far as like slower prediction market type oracles, but then how do you sort of speed it up? How do you get a real-time price feed or semi real-time price feed on chain? Um, and it's, it's sort of a completely different problem, so. Right, so I mean, now I'm, I'm kind of working on a tokenomics project as well. And one of the, one of the problems we have really is a price feed oracle. Right, where you yep. wanna you wanna have someone pay in currency A and but it be priced in currency B and to do that you need a you need a price feed. And one of the things we were wondering about was could we use a a liquidity pool to kind of give us that information? For sure. Yeah. So you're referring to kind of like the Uniswap Oracle. Yeah. Um yeah, so you there are some pros and cons to using um, on on-chain Oracle. A, it's sort of fast, um, sort of always up to date if you assume, but you you sort of make the assumption that there's liquidity in that pool. So if you're using a token that has a lot of liquidity in a Uniswap pool or there's only a Uniswap pool, for instance, like, yeah, it's, it's probably a fine place to get a price. Um, for things that don't have Uniswap pools or let's say for instance, the vast majority of the liquidity is on centralized exchanges, pulling your price from a Uniswap pool, you know, could be dangerous as far as, you know, if, if there's not a whole lot of liquidity in there, people can move the price if it's sort of not actively being maintained by somebody. So, so there are some risks there. Um, some of the other things, so like, you know, whenever Uniswap upgraded from V2 to V3, you know, usually if, if you want to be like a completely trustless protocol, you also probably put in the Uniswap address and that's your Oracle. Well, Uniswap upgraded from V2 to V3 and a lot of the V2 contracts had their liquidity drained and it went over to the V3 contracts. So now you as a user, if you were using V2, you would need to then have some way to switch your address or you would have to like provide liquidity on that pool all by yourself. So th there's some downsides for sure. Um, but for the most part, if, you know, if you're a small token or you, most of your liquidity is already on Uniswap, it, it's a great option. So it, like, it technically could work, but then you as a developer would have to kind of put your adversarial thinking head on and think about what what could happen in the ecosystem that would cause it to blow up. Correct. Yeah, and I mean, this, this goes into like, you know, maybe we can talk about it later, like best practices for using these. Like so, some people like, you could use like a Uniswap Oracle, but then, you know, which could be fine. And then if you say like, we'll use Uniswap, but then let's say, we get listed on centralized exchanges or the liquidity all dries up on Uniswap, we, we could fall back to Teller. So like if, you know, there's some threshold of liquidity or something that if it goes away on Uniswap, then we use Teller or something like that. Um, and as long as you built that in, then it could be slightly more robust. Interesting. So yes, we're, de we're definitely going to get into this later. Um, cool. But before we, we hop ahead, let's dive into what Teller is and I guess in general, just the question about oracles is how does how does an on-chain oracle solve, I guess, the classic oracle problem? Yeah, I mean, are we an on-chain oracle on this definition? I will. I would consider you yes. I'll let you. Okay. I'll let you make the decision. 
Well, yeah, no, I mean, sometimes people only refer to like Uniswap as like an on-chain oracle because uh, like we do get information from off-chain. So it's like slightly different. So I um, also like maybe make that differentiation. Yeah. Clarify oh. what, what goes on-chain, what goes off-chain. Right. Well, tell, I mean, I can just explain how Teller works. You can just, um, the, the Teller, we, we tried to solve it in a relatively simple way um, that it would be easy for understand for people to understand. But if, if you have a, if you have a question, so let's, let's go back to the classic, you know, what is the Bitcoin price? Uh, you, you could ask the Teller system, what's the Bitcoin price? And then we have what are called reporters and reporters can answer it. Reporters have to stake. So they stake, let's say $1,000 worth of our token in a smart contract. And then you would say, hey, reporter network, I'll pay you guys, I don't know, a dollar plus or minus some gas fees if you go and put the Bitcoin price on chain. So the wall race will put the Bitcoin price on chain for you and then it'll be quickly on chain. Um, now you can use it or you can dispute it. So if the value is good, it'll stay on chain for anyone to use. But if it's bad, people will actually race to dispute it. So people will say, hey, that value is wrong. They'll pay a small fee and it'll get pulled off chain. So it'll be disputed. Uh, whoever the reporter was, uh, they will. it will then be put up to a two day long vote as far as whether or not they need to get slashed and they can lose their stake. And then the, the stake goes to the person that disputed it, which is the incentive for them to go dispute. So now what you have is a system that um, basically you can request any kind of data. Uh, people are sort of competing to put it on chain for you, similar to, you know, we, we originally modeled it like after Bitcoin, you know, people are racing in a proof of work manner to bundle transactions and put it, put, get the next block, you know, in this sense, people are, racing to kind of submit price value for you. Um, and then they can get penalized if they lie. So it has that like proof of stake aspect to it. Um, a little caveat. So like Teller isn't like instantly fast. So if you've noticed about it, once it is put on chain, you know, you want to wait to use it because you want to wait to see if there's a dispute on it. And, and we leave that up to the user as far as how long they want to wait. So you could, you could use it after one minute that could be fine, especially if you're checking it yourself. And, you know, you could use it next block um, if you had some sort of checks in place. Or, you know, some users, they, they'll wait an hour or two hours since it's, they're only using it once a day and they, they don't need it to be real time. That way you're giving the system longer. This, this is sort of similar to um, in a system like, uh, like Bitcoin or Ethereum, whenever you deposit on Coinbase, like, you, you don't have access to your funds right as soon as you deposit it. Usually you wait for six block confirmations or you wait for, you know, 10 minutes, depending on the size of the transaction. And in the same way with Teller, depending on the size of the user or how much people would be willing to lose, you know, submitting bad values, you might want to wait a little bit longer. So that should, I think that's the general overview, but happy to kind of go into any of these a little bit deeper if you want. Yeah. So basically the, the oracles kind of the posters they are publishing in just in every so often in a just a regular ethereum block here's the price yep yeah so whenever you would want it you could we call it a tip you tip them and then they post the price um or you can set up like a recurring tip so you know post the ethereum price on chain once an hour um, and then you get a price feed and that's how it works so in that sense, on like the the data is on chain, correct? Right. And the proof of work that was kind of an interesting thing that I wanted to hear more about. So we used to be proof of work, um, no longer. So originally, when we launched, we would have, uh, yeah, this was like the original Teller model. We we had people competing at proof of work to submit. So you you would have to be staked, but then who whoever one at proof of work would get to submit the next block. Um, and that was the system that we had running for a while. Um, we had since moved away from it just to, A, proof of work was like limiting as far as how fast you could go on Ethereum. And then uh, it, it actually doesn't handle full locks of security. Proof of work's kind of cheap. So uh, 
why mm-hmm. I guess why do you why do you say that? I mean, I I, I have a few read-throughs about proof of work versus proof of stake, and half of my Twitter feed seems to always be about fighting about the security of yeah. work versus proof of stake. So I'm just kind of curious on the smaller scale, what you found. Yeah, I mean, it's whenever you're doing it, the, you know, the, the bigger pieces about it are um, the energy consumption is like not that great. Like even if you look at like how much does it cost to like 51% attack Ethereum or Bitcoin, you know, like if I can like go look up the numbers right now. Um, but it's like, you know, it was generally like a little over a million dollars to attack for an hour. Like, you know, you, I, I don't know what the volatility is, but um, it's like not a whole lot. You, you can really just like, so like even, so like right now, looking it up right now, the one hour att- attack cost on Bitcoin is 841 grand. The one hour ta- attack cost on Ethereum is 600 grand. So you could like mine every block. If you're willing to just blow 800 grand, you could mine every single block on Bitcoin. Um, there are some trades that would make that super profitable. Super profitable. Nobody's really done this yet. I'm waiting for somebody to start doing these. Um, but yeah, like, I mean, and then the smaller networks like Teller was, you know, we, we had a decent miner network as far as hash rate. But, you know, like if, if you look at the smaller proof of work networks, it's in the you know, it costs $2,000 to <laughs> to break it for an hour on the proof of work scale. And we we're like, oh man, the vast majority of our security is coming from proof of stake. Like, is it worth adding this giant, you know, proof of work piece? And, and we had the classic proof of work problems um, early on too. So like we we started out and, and I, I wrote like a Python miner and then I, I worked with the team and we, we wrote a GPU miner. And then like a month later, somebody started selling custom FPGAs out of China <laughs> and there was this like mining cartel and we're like man like we haven't even been alive for like three months how did this happen um, so yeah it was like and then like you like quit very quickly like every single one of the people mining on our networks was this like they were these like Chinese mining farms and we're like oh my god <laughs> like so there were downsides. Yeah, you know, it's security, but it, it's like, it's sort of different for, for early on. Um, especially right. just I, it, it only really makes sense. I mean, to me, when I heard it, um, kind of initially, what, what I thought was, unless you're really, just like you said, even the numbers for Bitcoin and Ethereum aren't crazy high. And if you're, if you're the Oracle, and you can settle that bet. I mean, someone can do some crazy derivative trade. Yep. And you know, it's just it's just bribing the the umpire for a very limited amount of time, and you make away with your with your trade. Yeah, well, I mean, I, I think you've talked about it on your podcast too. Like, you know, the big piece that actually the security doesn't come from Bitcoin's like cost to attack. It's it's sort of the lack of finality that that security comes in. So you know, like it's the lack of finality and the fact that everybody has specialized hardware. So, you know, even if you break Bitcoin for an hour, like most people would just be fine. They're just sitting and holding it. And then we're eventually going to revert back. And or if you do actually break it, you you lost a bunch of the specialized hardware to break it. So, you know, it, you would assume that it, it's sort of Bitcoin's sort of de facto proof of stake in that way that you have to go buy all this specialized hardware, which is basically staking. Um, so, right. right. Yeah. So when did you guys shift to proof of stake and how does that model, does that model just look purely like a regular proof of stake where? No, I mean, well, I, I, it, the system we're on now is the one I described. So it's like not oh, okay. really proof of stake because it's, you know, we're not our own blockchain. So it's not, right. um, yeah, like we piggyback. <laughs> no, we, we just have people sort of bond or report. Um, and it was, yeah, like, by just being built on top of the blockchains that we're on, you you can get around a lot of the nuances and the hard parts of proof of stake. So, right, I, I think it also makes a lot more sense that way. You you benefit from the kind of Ethereum's security price, and at the end of the day, there's still a smart contract that governs people's local stakes. Yeah, well, and then that's it's sort of the problem, and like a lot of some oracles have chosen to like go be their own blockchain but it, they've sort of done so unsuccessfully because there's always the question of okay you're your own chain well how do you get that data onto ethereum now 
um, where it's needed. And so it sort of has to be built in a smart contract and be accessible on chain. All right, so I guess we started touching on this, but um, when you guys set out to build it, how did you go about designing the incentive mechanism? I think like it's, I think this is sure. where you and Brenda come, like your team has really, really interesting background and experience because a lot of these systems are kind of, um, they're at the forefront of, you know, mixing old disciplines whether it's economics or governance. Um, and right. that junction is what's really interesting for me about this entire space. Yeah, so, you know, we, we came from, we're economists by training, um, but it, it was it was sort of tough. Like we, a lot of experimentation has gone to get from where we started to where we are now, for sure. But like, if you knew like kind of what projects we were doing before this, you know, we were, I, I had worked, Brendan and I originally worked at the Bureau of Labor Statistics and then the CFTC is where I went. And then we started de doing decentralized derivatives um, like in 2017 and we got an Ethereum Foundation grant and we're trying to do uh, derivatives on a side chain back then. Um, and basically, you know, we ran into the Oracle problem. So we were trying to really solve how do we how do we do the Oracle? How do we solve the Oracle problem for our derivatives platform? And, and we liked sort of going down this rabbit hole of building, building these incentive mechanisms to, to make it so that people would report on this data that we just sort of gave up on the derivative piece and, and became an Oracle. Um, you know, yeah, I don't even know. It's just been, we, we tried to put it at the, I, th I think the way that we designed it originally was just like with the values of, you know, how do we actually make something decentralized? You know, that, that was what we saw everybody doing wrong in the space. Everybody has these, you saw this idea of sort of progressive decentralization and building it from, you know, like, oh, we'll, we'll decentralize later. And it's like, no, like, how do we build a system that's actually decentralized from the start and we can actually use and say it's honest and decentralized. And, and from there, like that, that's, if that's like your starting point, then it makes it really hard to, to pick other pieces. So, so what makes it decentralized? Is it that yeah. anyone can be an an oracle? Is that what makes it decentralized? Is it that it's immutable? Is there governance? Like, what's? Yeah. So I mean, we have some governance on disputes. I, I think there's like, you know, decentralization. Like everybody says, usually you hear it from like the centralized players. They'll say like decentralization is a spectrum. Um, and you're like, no, really. I think it's, I, I think it's more of one of those things where like, you know, the, using the SEC definition, like you can be sufficiently decentralized and that's like the goal. But like in my mind, first there's like the, are you theoretically decentralized? Like there's like, you can, you can be theoretically decentralized first as far as like you pass all the basic checks. Like, do you have an admin key? Can you potentially rug every single person with, with, you know, your team's account? Like, once you first you have to pass those as far as like okay now we're gonna be okay so no one person can upgrade the contract or can rug everyone no you know the team doesn't the team can't unilaterally vote anything through that they want or and then like once you're theoretically decentralized then it's you have to become like sort of practically decentralized and this comes into you know how many nodes do you have what's the what's the distribution of your token you know if you have voting like is it does the team hold 90% or is it actually distributed you know this is the same problem with like a layer one. I, I think oracles are really similar to like layer ones in that sense um, you, first you have to be like theoretically decentralized and then after that then it goes into okay well you know what does your minor validation look like how many full nodes do you have who's actually running your proof of stake thing you know what does the distribution look like so that's kind of how we set out from Teller first. We, we sort of built this system that, okay, this, this can be decentralized and now we've just been on a road to push it farther into the, you know, more and more people are owning it, more and more people can, can do things with it. And, and I think to answer your question specifically with regard to oracles, the big pieces are it's, okay, well, who can report data? So you know, that, that's always the big question. So who gets to push these prices on chain? and it should be able to be anybody. So there should be some clear way to say, um, 
any single person can do it. This is the process you can stake. You can, you can stake, you can sign up, you can do proof of work, whatever, and then and then you can participate in the network. And if those other people die <laughs> that are doing it now and they go down, anybody else can step in their place, similar to like an Ethereum or a Bitcoin mining. There's no permissions necessary. It's just this is permissionless. You can jump on board and, and take place in the network. And once that's that that's like the permissionless aspect of the reporting. And then from the other Oracle side, um, from the user side, it's permissionless in the sense of anybody can request data and read data. So this this is one of the big problems in the space as far as you know, you have to usually if you want to price heat up, you have to call up the Oracle company on you know on their Discord, hop on a call and say, Can you run this price feed for me? And they'll say, Oh sure. Um, no, it should be it should be open and permissionless. Like you, you shouldn't have to you should just be able to go use it. Um, Sure, you can go talk to their team, but you shouldn't have to ask for their permission. They shouldn't be able to say, no, the Oracle is not going to provide this data for you. Um, yeah, because I think in the future, there's going to be issues around you know, regulatory issues or, some, or, or other pieces that they might want to censor through the Oracle. But now it's just like everything is just approved at such a you know, whitelisted level. So th those are definitely the two pieces I look for in an Oracle being actually permissionless. So being permissionless on the data side and then being permissionless on who can, reporter who can side. Re yeah, reporters. Yeah. Yep. Both sides need to be there. Um, I mean, you could be like, you know, you can have, because it's really hard to have one without the other. So, because they usually feed into each other. Right. So my follow-up to that was, A, do developers care? about <laughs> decentralization yeah. and i mean i mean that i know some developers do but i guess i'm sure some care about it on a spectrum but also just like what developers care like what projects do you think their developers care more about having a decentralized oracle than just having i don't know 15 purely centralized oracles that just post it on chain and then they take you know the average of all of them yeah no I, I it's a super fair question because i mean this was something that we <laughs> we've wrestled with with like users and or with you know token holders forever as far as like users sure. don't care um but no i, I think a we care but <laughs> the the general piece is that you know some users will care some users won't care but ultimately we're building on top of like ethereum so you know it, it, in our minds like okay so if you're building on top of Ethereum, like or, or most of these crypto networks that are supposed to be decentralized themselves, what you're building should also be decentralized, um, or else you should probably go use a database or, or something similar. Uh, you probably don't need to be putting it on a blockchain. And if if you if you think that you know, as far as okay, if, if we're building on top of these other decentralized networks, we should also be decentralized. And um, I think it's it's one of those things where some users. Some users definitely care. Um, as far as you know, the really good users, the the smart power users of of the systems building new and novel things. Um, but some users, I mean, it's one of those things. Like, do people actually care about decentralization in the space? And, and a lot of times, the answer is no. You know, so many projects, have, especially DeFi protocols, launch with just straight up admin keys. <laughs> you know, one or two guys could just rug the entire protocol. Um, and and usually the usually what you'll hear from them is that well, we'll deal with decentralization later. You know, you guys have caveats. Um, there, there's like always, you know, it, it's always like slightly different using a decentralized protocol than like oh we'll just go use this you know chain link price feed that is it runs every hour and and it's up to date and we just pretend that it's going to be completely accurate forever, and then we'll figure it out later when we're successful. And that's what you hear. Um, like we'll deal with the oracle problem later you know and, and then what always happens is with these projects you know it's like you you hear that and you're they're like then you give them a call back a month later and they're like yeah like okay we're ready to um you know start decentralizing teller because their, their community decentralizing with teller their community wants to push them in a more decentralized way and then what do you know their price goes to zero or <laughs> or something like that because they were they got rugged or it was never really a good project to begin with. And, and that's, 
you know, kind of like we were talking about before, the whole decentralized later thing just never happens. Um, it's usually you're centralized from the start until you end. Yeah, it's really hard to decentralize. Um, yes. People completely underestimate how hard it is. And especially if you don't build that culture from the beginning. And then a lot of these systems can't always be changed later in the same way that you could change you know, a, a centralized system or just something that's not on the blockchain. Like they don't, it's not as smooth. Yeah, no, I mean, it's similar to like if you were building building an app on just, you know, a web two database, and then you wanted to switch it to Ethereum, like it's super hard, like, because your whole user flow has to change. Exactly. Like, you know, like, and, and then same with the app, you know, other DeFi protocols, they're like, well, you're right now you're using a centralized Oracle, and you assume that it's always going to be correct, and that it's never going to pause. Well, what happens? If, what if it does? If, what if it does? And, you know, like, and it's always just, it, it changes the whole flow in the worst potential case so making sure that people understand that has been tough but you know we're we're, we're definitely starting to educate people more like i'll be honest yeah like three years ago when we were doing this like nobody cared about the oracle problem and <laughs> it was you know like it, if you do you remember like oracle eyes that was like who people were using in 2017 i, I remember uh, the name i never really i never used anyone so it was uh so he runs uh, p network now um great guy but yeah he was just some guy in london running a server and you would pay him 50 cents and he would send back your smart contracts value um and it was just it was very overt that's what was going on um <laughs> uh but yeah so we've gotten better as a space for sure you know people are starting to talk about this stuff and and, and we're, we're definitely very pleased and doing our part to educate people i mean it's it's so interesting because for me this whole space makes no sense without decentralization. And I know like the Bitcoin maxis yell at Ethereum and Ethereum maxis yell at other chains, but yeah. like you know, at the end of the day, everything that's being built on top, all the games and the NFTs and ownership, basically all of these forms of digital ownership, they don't work without the decentralization no. that keeps it, immutable is the word I'm looking for, but it keeps it, I guess, openly permissionless and available and running. Uh, and without, right. that, without that, it's like, what are we, what are we even doing here? Yeah. Like, there's so many projects that are copy pasting like traditional financial schemes or traditional financial projects and saying, okay, we'll do it on a blockchain and we'll raise a lot of money. And at the end of the day, they all probably come to you guys because they need an Oracle. So I guess what, what projects do you think make sense for a decentralized system and what ones really, really don't? Yeah, well, I mean, the biggest ones to like we'll hear, like the ones that definitely do. So it's the big lending protocols, the big stable coins, you know, they need price feeds, they need decentralized systems um, and they should be doing their best to, to make sure that they have actually a robust Oracle piece in place. You know, whether you're using Teller or you have, you know, similar to like I was talking about before, fallback mechanisms in place um, just to make sure that it works. You know, if you claim to be decentralized, you should be pushing to have a decentralized Oracle. Um, and then the ones that don't make sense for sure, you know, like we, we get all the time, like, hey, can we, like, we're hosting an API. Can you guys put it on chain for us? And it's like, no, that doesn't even make any sense. You guys just put it on chain. Um, you know, you're obviously hosting the API and could shut it down at any point. Um, like we're hosting in a similar... an API for, for just anything? Yeah, well, no, like if you're the only source of the data. So oh, got it, got it. You know, you'll hear that sometimes, like people, and it's like, no, we, we can't just, we're not a relayer there. Um, but that's usually a bad use case. Um, other things that are really tough with oracles, um, you know, like real time data, like if, but this is like, it's basically like anything that's bad with a blockchain. Like, you know, if you're trying to build a high frequency database on, or high frequency trading app on top of Ethereum, like there's things like front running that we're all dealing with now. And um, there, there's definitely a whole lot of issues that come with just trying to do that in the lack of finality. And we were talking about the cost to, you could roll back, people could potentially roll back chains and 
if there's big enough trades and you know we we haven't seen we're just sort of scratching the surface i think on those attacks or surfaces but we always just tell people slow down um but th those are usually the big pieces that we have to tell people um and yeah other things i mean we've we've definitely had quite a few ponzi schemes use us as an oracle and it's it's always slightly uncomfortable <laughs> but you you know, you, you're like, we're permissionless. We're just really not going to talk about you guys ever. I mean, anyone can use it, but we just don't have to like you. Yeah, exactly. You know, like fork, like we had a bunch, we had several forks of Olympus Dow or, you know, come on and, and try and use us. And it was like, oh man, <laughs> don't tell anybody. <laughs> and it's usually like a huge red flag because they'll be like, hey, we're looking for an Oracle. Can you guys do this price feed? we need you up by the end of the week. And you're like, man, I'm sure you're going to really robustly test your protocol. Um, <laughs> but yeah, and they're, they're, you, you can just tell from the users coming on like on how fast they need it and how, how much testing they've done, whether or not this is just a pure cash grab. <laughs> uh, gotta love those. I mean, that's, that's I, I don't have a lot of kind of schadenfreude in me for the market crash now, but... Right. I, I mean, but I, I I am happy that like the just some of the crap is clearing out. Um, For on sure. A, on a macro level, I think it'll. It's just necessary. It really is just necessary. But um, I guess when yeah. when you're th when you guys were building the protocol, how were you thinking about ways that it can be attacked, manipulated? Um, also for you as teller, but also for developers who would be building on it. I mean, you kind of shed light on this way of thinking in the beginning when you were talking about Uniswap and you were saying, well, if you're a developer, the pool might be there, but the liquidity might drop. And so that'll affect all kinds of things. And if you're a developer, you might want to consider using a backup or things like that. So I guess, how did you guys think about that internally? How did you think about that for developers building and best practices? Yeah, I mean, this has been something we've sort of shifted on originally. So, you know, like I'll get into how we're, where we're sort of going and, and kind of how we have moved in the past. And, you know, we, we originally had launched um, with, with upgradability in our system. So, you know, we had an Oracle at an address and then we could upgrade the functionality as, as we wanted to change and make things better. Um, and this was sort of necessary. And we had, sort of thought this was necessary in some ways because you had, you know, like the Uniswap problem. So if you went from Uniswap V2 to V3, then everything got drained from Uniswap and, and went to V3. And now if you had a protocol relying on that V2 Oracle, they're out of luck. You know, they would have to sort of own the governance in their own system to then upgrade to V3. And so if they wanted to be a governance, governance-less protocol, uh, they, they would have to sort of not, you know, they, they would have to do something else. And so we said, okay, well, how about we just own the governance, you know, we'll have token voting to and a DAO and, and we'll allow people, we'll have some way to upgrade our functionality. So the, the underlying users don't have to. Um, we've since we're, we're changing this. Uh, so we since have changed it on, on all the networks and you're just, we realize that governance is sort of a risk in a lot of ways, you know, there's ways to attack the governance system as well in, in terms of upgrading it and minting more tokens or something like, or, or anything like that. So we, we've removed a lot of that governance. We still have to have votes for, for the disputes, but um, now if, if we upgrade, it's, it's a new contract address, but then similar to the users having to provide their own liquidity, uh, our goal has always been like, you know, now, you can actually just run your own reporter on the old address, or you can still pay people to have run reporters over there. The incentives actually don't change at all as far as, you know, whether or not people would want to be on one or the other, the reporters, like they, they can actually just be on both. Um, so it, it doesn't actually make it a problem. And, and I think that's the, the goal is, even if you are upgrading and people have to switch addresses, how do you make it so that way it's, the the older contracts don't rely on these sort of network effects as much um and, and that's kind of been how we've been thinking about it but yeah it's it's definitely been a tough road as far as that goes you know we've we've gone down the road like for the last two years we've had token weighted voting and, and things like that in our system and just 
the classic DAO problems of how do you get people to actually vote and care about your system in, a, in an honest way, at least at size. So it's been fun. Yeah, it's it's one of it's kind of similar to uh, the building centralized and thinking you'll go decentralized. It's this mechanism where I think the Web3 world has been way too optimistic in the sense of how hard it actually is to get, you know, it's like a running democracy. Yeah, for sure. It's, it's so it's so hard. Even when we live in a country, usually the, the voting percentage yeah. is, is ridiculously low. And that happens once every four years. And, you know, when it's in an online world, discord based on how many tokens and everyone like it's it's really, really difficult. Yeah, no, I mean, I, I love the fact that people are trying and I think DAOs are going to eventually we're going to be doing some great things with DAOs. Um, super bullish on them for a lot of things. But as far as some of the core underlying protocol pieces, I, I don't think you necessarily need you. You want to sort of strip it out as much of the risk of the DAO as possible. You just want to have it in the certain areas that you sort of need it. in. <laughs> um, and yeah, so and, and then it can sort of limit it and make it okay i guess so when a when a developer comes and builds with teller what are what are the things they should be thinking about should they be thinking about what happens if you guys get attacked um, how do they deal with that what other yeah. like fallback options should they be using yeah i mean we always tell them like just straight up like there, there's a first piece like okay well just in a general best practice even though even though we won't just pretend we go down <laughs> you know like you you could add a backup and like what's the worst case scenario and you know this is something like you have like, like even maker for instance maker uses like a pretty centralized oracle for their system but um they have a one hour shutoff window so there's an oracle update and they don't use it for an hour and they, they could shut down the whole die system in that time that's it's a great example of something that's it's good um so you know thinking about okay well what happens if teller goes down you know other things as far as you know this has happened with chain link this has happened with maker as well what happens if you don't get an update so teller doesn't go down as far as a malicious attack it could just go down as far as you know gas prices spike up to twenty thousand gway or something like that and um it's just too expensive to put anything on chain is your protocol broken? Maybe, um, you know, like what should happen there? And just thinking through those pieces is really, really important. But then probably the biggest piece we work with users on is, is defining the data you actually want to put on chain. So this isn't necessarily, necessarily our job as far as like, we'll put whatever data you want on chain, but it changes how your protocol works, how you define the data. So for instance, if you're you know, in, in our example of the Bitcoin price, um, there's a big difference between I want the Bitcoin price on chain versus I want the Bitcoin price at 4 p.m. on Coinbase on chain. You know, like it, how much you actually define it has, has some big implications. So, you know, if you define it as just I want the price from this specific exchange, that can be good. However, now people know where to go to manipulate the price or the question is, okay, well, what happens if the Coinbase API goes down? Now, do you get a price? Like maybe. Um, and then same with if you, you know, do you want a median of three exchanges? Well, there's pros and cons to medians. You know, you could, you know, you can manipulate on two of the three or, or do you just said more? Or you could do something more ambiguous as far as like, I just want a valid Bitcoin price. And then you let sort of the, the dispute mechanism decide, was it a valid price? Um, but there's there's super hard questions and there's not necessarily like a right answer, but just making sure the users actually think through those um, is probably the hardest part for, from like educating the user perspective. Right. These are like users are, are basically developers who are building their own stuff. Right. And usually they don't even want to think about, you know, this and, you know, like a lot of times we're, we're starting to talk more with people who want us for cross chain calls. So, you know, you want to read the total supply of something over on Polygon for your DeFi app. Um, you know, talking to people, well, what happens if, you know, there's the chain halts or if it rolls back or, you know, like if, if you wanted some data from Ethereum, like, like how much finality are you waiting for in your chain? And these are things that most of the time they don't think about, but it, it's definitely important to think about. Yeah, data's messy. <laughs> yes, blockchain data is super messy. Blockchain data is super messy. 
And I mean, I, I understand if you're a developer, you just kind of want to do your thing. And I think, by the way, this is like one of the wonderful things about centralized API calls, right? You get this really clear, clear cut cookie cutter, you know, the good companies who do it and they take care of it for you and you're trusting the centralized entity right. to, to kind of choose the right value for you even. Um, and yep. this just adds a lot of complexity as a builder, but I mean, I was, I was kind of looking through the documentation that you guys have on your website over the past week. And like, you have a whole section on security and use cases um, and, you know, a section for the developers who, are, who you guys call integrators. Right. Um, right. And I was, I was kind of looking for, here are things you as a developer should think about. Like what happens if our price, you know, what happens if the oracles get hacked for an hour, not hacked, but there's a malicious sure. kind of reporter for an hour. What happens if all of these use cases you were Oh, no, those would be about. good. Yeah. Maybe yeah. we should get a, a Gitcoin project for to fund this. Well, no, we actually, so this was, uh, I was actually last, last week I was out in Berlin. There was the Blockchain Oracle Conference. Um, it was super good. Um, but we, we sat down with, I, I ran a round table on um, best practices for oracles. <laughs> And it, so, you know, we sat down, there were, there were a few, there were like five other Oracle projects there. And, and so we're going to start a, a GitHub repo with just, here's, here's a list of best practices for Oracle users to, regardless of what Oracle you use, do this. Um, and, and that hopefully that can, can help oh, that's teach cool. people. I mean, I say that's cool with kind of the geekiest hat I can have on my head right now. Yes. Um. <laughs> well, we're call, we're calling it the the Alliance of Decentralized Oracles, so you can. <laughs> so, I'll 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 read it. You know, I'll give it a read through for the yeah. podcast. Um, I only I started getting into oracles and this this kind of whole. I mean, when Augur came out, it was like 2016, I think. I think uh, even earlier, but yeah. Earlier, well, I, that's when I kind of started diving into into Bitcoin and Ethereum. It was in 2016, and I yes. kind of read up on them and. And then I completely forgot about oracles until last year when the first project that I actually looked into that, that was using an oracle um, was Liquidy. Oh, cool. You know, and, and until then, I don't know, I don't do many things. I used, you know, I have Bitcoin, Ethereum, uh, Thorchain, which is, yeah. kinda, you know, trying to be decentralized cross chain. But they're basically oracles, you know? Right. But, but they do it yeah. with their own you know, with an entire chain, like that's, that's the goal. Um, and, yeah. and none of the projects that I kind of looked into had an Oracle. And then I started going down this, it, and it's kind of a rabbit hole, but also a black hole of just, <laughs> oh my God, what happens if this happens? And what happens if that happens? And what happens if this happens? And, and you're like, and, I'm out. Yeah. And then I, and, and since then there have also been a bunch of Oracle attacks. Yeah. They're, they're getting more common because I think people are starting to realize how to do it. Right. I also think a lot of people who built built without kind of taking well, this into account. Yeah, when it, we're actually, you know, part of the things we were talking about at that round table, we're like, how do we get the auditors on board? Um, because what often happens in the audits is um, you have, you know, let's say like liquidity and then they'll integrate Teller as their Oracle or Chainlink and um, they'll go to the auditor and the, the auditor will say, okay, what's in scope here? And they're, and, and it'll just be the liquidies piece. And cause they'll say, well, Teller's audited. So liquidity is what's been, you know, our, we're auditing our protocol. And so the auditors won't even look at the oracles. They'll just assume that the oracles are always correct. And that, you know, now, now you're doing this because it's not part of their audit. And that's the problem, you know, like Teller's been audited, the other protocol has been audited, but the problem is the integration. Right. Um, and so we're going to be really focusing, you know, like if anybody out there needs a, an audit of their Oracle in their system, definitely reach out to me. I'll, <laughs> I'll, I'll do it myself. But, you know, like it's a, it's one of those things, like how do we teach auditors the best, like the integration matters, the Oracle piece matters. And especially these knowing how to integrate each separate Oracle is super important. Um, similar to like, you know, if we, if, if we get attacked for an hour, if there are no updates in your Oracle, um, what happens? And if the Oracle is just dead, what happens? You know, and, and they never think about that. So, Whew. well, yeah, I think this is this is kind of a should be a wake up call for the people who 
software developing. Um, in general, I think just the market crash is going to wake up a lot of people in the sense of know what you own. Because um, I think that's what we're seeing with a lot of the the margin calls, the leverage, and just a lot of people who don't actually know what they own. Um, right. But I guess one of the things here, and close to wrapping it up, I think, but the uh, there is like a longevity that you need for the project, and there's this process that you've kind of been walking through along the way of slowly you guys backing out because there's some things that you were still using this language of we are going to do we're going to do this and then there was also sure. language of just you know the oracles the this the, like the protocol will kind of take care of it the incentive mechanism will take care of it so i guess what's the what's the final vision for you guys as a team and i mean we were chatting about this right before we started to record but also like what keeps right. What keeps you guys incentivized as a team? Like, there's a there's a reason people take funding. There's a reason people mint tokens, and you know. Yeah. So we up. we do have a yeah. So we have a token, and um, the token is basically just used for the staking in the network, and then um, the voting on the disputes. It's part of that process, uh, and then so we get what's called the dev share. So we get four thousand tokens a month minted to the team, and that's. That's how we fund the whole team. Um, it's just sort of fixed and, and in place. And yeah, that's, you know, we, we could eventually like throw it to the zero address or throw it to a DAO for further funding. But yeah, I mean, the, the basics of, you know, hopefully as a team, we go away. Um, you know, we've said this from the beginning. That's like, that's like the mark of success in my mind for any blockchain project is like, if you founded it and eventually the community throws you out, um, but yeah, the, the, the general idea would be hopefully, you know, we could just help users integrate over time and, um, you know, just be a voice, throw some cool events if it's successful enough. Uh, but yeah, that's, that's definitely the goal of it. And it's been, it's been hard because, you know, like you want that there's always this issue of, you know, like, well, do you have product, do you have a product market fit? And you know, like, when do you, when do you leave? Um, when is it sort of ready because you know you see sometimes the founders are just like peace out and it's a way for them to exit um so you know we, we definitely want to set it up on its on the right path and, and then sort of back away but we've been really careful about you know we, we haven't taken really a whole lot of vc funding uh we haven't taken any and then uh same with yeah just just try and you know not get the team really big not not jump on board a lot of other different projects so it's stuff and this is actually like it's this is one of the cool aspects of having a token and like this is one of the cool things of web3 where you're you have a way to incentivize a core team to work on it and and hopefully that makes it sustainable and you don't need to go with the you know 500 million dollar funding rounds that a lot of other companies would need and and you can do that especially if you're building kind of a local I'll call it a local economy, right? Because it's, yeah. you know, but there's well, this also... was, yeah. No, go on. Yeah, I mean, this, this is like why tokens were cool from the get-go. Like, you know, nobody ever thought that like we should have these like access tokens or utility tokens for getting in there. But the reason that you had tokens, you know, or, or even the reason Ethereum was really cool and, and stuff like that is it's a way to sort of bootstrap things. So it gets it gets the whole thing rolling, and it it's it's how you sort of community fund a project to get started, and that's why it never made sense to me. Like, well, if you raised five hundred million dollars, like, why do you need a token? Like, you can probably do without the token. Um, you know, the, the token in general is there's these awesome ways that you can. The token is used to to create incentives. Like that's like Bitcoin. You know, the Bitcoin token is used to. A, it's the whole use case of the scenario, but the minting of it, especially the minting of Bitcoin now provides security to the network. That's why we mint the token and same with Ethereum and that whole general idea of like, okay, oh, we can mint tokens and incentivize something like that's like, well, so we, we took our model as far as the dev share that came from the first people I think that used it were like Zcash. So, you know, Zcash took a, takes a dev share for their core members. Um, so we liked that model as far as just, okay, now they, they get a certain percentage of this. It's not that there was no pre-mine as far as like they have 70%. They're, 
they want to pump it and then get out. No, it's like this this long term stream, and hopefully it keeps us incentivized for the long term and and aligned with the right values for the community. Right. I, I think you can. I think it works particularly well when you have projects that are kind of a capsule where they're designed they're designed well and they they have a life of their own and they are permissionless and here in the sense that as long as ethereum keeps on running just like you were saying about bitcoin then then yeah anyone can be an oracle anyone can come provide data get paid for that service the staking will happen you know the the refutation will happen and and it and the token helps incentivize that it helps align everyone around around that small local economy for sure yeah this was um i one of like the the book i've read a few times it's a uh, bernard leotar he's a an economist and he wrote the future of money and it's all about just this idea of community currencies that have been around for a long time and the general idea of how you can by just having a currency that you give people it, it changes people's incentives and it changes their behavior so you know if usually like the reason that you want to issue a token is because you have these sort of excess resources that aren't being organized so in in the same way you know if you have like young men out of work in a city and you have things that need to be done and everybody's just sitting around you should mint a currency and, and start paying people and, and even if you know the token doesn't have lasting value of digital gold like things are getting done like we're creating something good and, and that's the ultimate goal um you know we're, we're moving things around and we're, we're creating something we're doing something with these resources and um that's really where tokens i think are, are best used hmm, cool i'm gonna add that to my reading list and i'm gonna put it into the show notes so people can that sounds, like a, that sounds like a good read. Yeah, it's a, it's a, it's a trippy one for sure. <laughs> no, it's, it's also one of the things that I was always thinking about, like the, the fact that you have Uniswap, SushiSwap, you know, all of these kind of AMMs where you can trade any token that represents anything for anything else. That's kind of what it is. Like uh, do it for communities. Like there, there's so many different liquidity mechanisms out there that you can almost you, yeah. turn liquid. Well, you, you, well, that's like different, you know, and DeFi is really crazy because like th there's actually a whole vast literature on community currencies that stems well before digital currencies, you know, people just trying to create their own local currencies for, for trade and to incentivize, like, how do we get people to shop in our town or how do we get, you know, keep a local economy running and things like that. And I, I think there's a whole lot that we can take from that as a DeFi ecosystem, um, you know how to actually just create meaningful currencies that that are actually making a difference versus just these these access tokens or things we can speculate on interesting cool well where should people find more about you guys if they want to build if they want to just read up yeah so you can just go to our website teller.io or follow us on twitter we are teller um <laughs> you can yeah, um, come join our Discord. You can, you can definitely just uh, hit us up. You you can ask for me there, and and we'll we'll talk with you if you just have any questions, want to integrate, or or just want to chat. Happy to. Any any future project plans besides Teller? Uh, for <laughs> no, I mean, it's it, this is kind of it at the moment. Trying to help users out as much as possible for sure. Um, yeah, no, it's um, th there's definitely fun stuff because we we build like little hack projects, um, you know, on the side. Like we try and participate in the hackathons both as a team and from sponsoring them. And, and we always build, try and come up with cool ways that you can use Teller and and create new bridges or new AMM structures with if you actually had outside data. So it's fun. How big is the team, by the way? Uh, there are <laughs> twelve of us, I believe. Cool. So, small but cool yep yeah uh, we're hopefully 12 hopefully uh going to zero over the long term but uh <laughs> not too fast with this bear market <laughs> uh, yeah it doesn't who knows who knows at, at our own pace not not at the market's pace <laughs> <laughs> yeah with the market's pace you never know what's gonna happen tomorrow so exactly who the hell knows what's gonna go on with the market but hey the thing is as the market goes down i just like the use cases for 
or why this is exciting are just like clear to me every single day that it's just uh it's just crazy for me like the kind of the con the internal conviction that i have and the prices that are going on so sure. maybe i'm crazy maybe the market no, crazy. Who knows? oh we're getting way better i mean that's like everybody I, I think i read on twitter today like you know the the prices have crashed so much but then everything's still running right like you yeah i mean like in five six years ago like you'd be hearing about how centralized exchanges are actually insolvent and <laughs> they're closing their doors and you know DeFi protocols all shut down but no like everything's you know of course we you know a few people have obviously went on went out with the tide but, but yeah but that's fine yeah, i mean I, that, yeah. that's the whole thing like there are two things here that that screamed out to me how this is working and one is that it's like everything's actually working ethereum's yeah. running bitcoin's running like i can move you know i can move funds around the world in a minute right and the other thing is just that yeah like the people who took excessive risk get washed out and and that's how you also clean the moral hazard out of the system which is one of the things we haven't been doing in the regular financial system right and i'm actually you know i'm sad to see people lose money in in celsius or in in whatever whatever happens but the fact that the moral hazard gets cleared is the right risk adjustment to the to the system as a whole so for sure that's just a my two cents but all right nick thanks for thanks for this chat this is super <laughs> super super interesting thanks yeah thanks for having me on uh hope to chat again soon